How Can Supply Chains Correct the Mistakes of 2019, Learn from the Disasters of 2020, and Survive 2021? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Most companies today are in survival mode. They barely have the time or resources to look beyond the current crisis to the months and years ahead, let alone to the mistakes of the past that made them vulnerable to this disruption. All the same, it's essential to define the nature of the challenge they face, or, should I say, challenges. Five, to be precise. That's how many we're going to discuss with the help of Glenn Jones, Group Vice President of Product Strategy with Bloom Global. Call it our top five if you don't take top to mean best or favorite, just all important. Let's find out what supply chain leaders need to address in the coming year and beyond. Here is my conversation with Glenn Jones. Glenn Jones, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation because it indicates that maybe there are lessons that can be learned from the past, mistakes that can be fixed, challenges that can be outlined and therefore addressed. And what we're going to do today, I understand, is we're going to talk about five key challenges that supply chain leaders need to address based on the past, based on the current situation, and ways in which some of those challenges might be successfully addressed, especially now at a particularly challenging time. So let me start, Glenn, by bringing up number one, and that is a pretty obvious one to anyone who's been in this business for any amount of time, and and that is shipment journeys are complex and fragmented. Could you speak to that? In what sense is that the case? And maybe give us a little insight into why that's the case. Absolutely, yes. And we're really talking about uh, different kinds of shipment journeys, but the primary one we tend to focus on is the international where you start out with what we call a dry leg potentially. And so this involves an ocean move. So you have to get cargo initially from a factory or from a DC, maybe somewhere in Southeast Asia to uh, an ocean port. And then it gets on an ocean vessel, goes across into either Europe or US or Africa. Many times that's multiple legs. So it's not just a direct ship maybe to Los Angeles from Shanghai, but instead it has to go through maybe a transship somewhere in Busan, Korea, and then maybe it makes the connect just like if you're flying in a passenger line and, and you could miss a connect, you could make a connect. And then it'll go get into the U.S. somewhere. And then it has to go on another, what we call a dray move, or a trucking company has to cart it maybe to a consolidation or a deconsolidation center where that shipment is unpacked out of a container, put on either maybe a rail, or it could be put on to another truck that's carried into somewhere into the U.S. or into Europe. So that's a very complex move. It's hard to track all the moving parts, and hence why we tend to have freight forwarders that kind of handle this. And, and, and intermixed in that is getting to customs and customs clearance. And sometimes cargo can get held up in customs for indefinite amount of time. It's important mm-hmm. to have visibility into that. 
Yeah, well, now all of what you just described, that just seems to come with the territory. That's the very nature of international transportation. So maybe we can talk about complex and fragmented as a feature, not a bug, something that can't necessarily be fixed, but can certainly be addressed in certain ways. And maybe we can, as we go through these subsequent points, we can address that as well. The second part, though, is maybe something that could be addressed, and that is that transportation capacity constraints lead to inflated prices and significant waste. Where are those constraints? Some of the key constraints in this is a marine terminal's ability to get cargo off of a vessel and provide the kind of visibility. So typically marine terminals are black holes in the supply chain in many cases because the shippers and the receivers, the importers, lose visibility through these. Marine terminals, it can take up to four days to get a container cleared off a vessel, cleared through a marine terminal, and then onto either a rail or a motor carrier to, to take it out and get it to its destination. Airports can be very similar. So this is another kind of constraint. You would think that you could, uh, just like a passenger, a ULD could land into an airport and could be immediately pulled out and moved to a consolidation center, but that doesn't tend to happen. Sometimes uh, ULDs can be held up for two or three days the same way than an airport trying to clear customs. When we say inflated prices, though, we are implying that they're not market prices, that they could actually be lower if this whole system was more efficient. The biggest waste is where? The waste comes through empty miles. As an example, if you have a marine container, uh, you know, one of the big shipping lines, Maersk, ONE, they might move a marine container out of the seaport of LA on rail to Chicago, and then there will be a, a dray carrier that might carry that down to uh, Indianapolis. So the container's full going down to Indianapolis, but then that marine container has to get back to the seaport. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, that marine container will go back empty. And so those are empty miles that can be recovered. The exact same thing happens, you know, when you're doing rail moves and and even uh, air cargo moves. The, The return trip is typically an empty container. Well, you could transload into a domestic trailer, could you not? Therefore, the marine container doesn't even go inland. It just turns right back around at the port. That seems like an an answer. It certainly has been practiced pretty regularly. It is. And there's other ways to reduce the empties by offering what we call a domestic reload program. So when the marine container gets in inland, we have other programs because we work a lot with the railroads where you can actually get a domestic load that goes back near the seaport or maybe an export load and you can load that cargo into the main container and get it back near the seaport and then you can do a a short move from there back to the actual Mm -hmm. seaport. Number three, on-demand delivery expectations, certainly been increasing quite a bit in recent years, are leading companies to rely on large localized inventories, which results in enormous overhead costs and waste. Now, When I hear that statement, I kind of go, yeah, how else could it be done based on the fact that these demands are so immediate? Must we not have large localized inventories? Are you suggesting there's an alternative? There is. I mean, it's really important now for companies who can't vertically integrate like Amazon. So I mean, Amazon's approach this problem by vertically integrating and buying trucks and leasing airplanes and being able to manage the supply chain that way. But 
Most companies can't do that. And so it's extremely important to be able to have tools to be able to balance the cost of carrying the inventory with the instant gratification or being able to ship cargo much faster. Those are really important in the supply chain. So the next generation of tools will really focus on how to balance that cost versus maintaining the inventory and making sure the store shelf doesn't run dry. We certainly do go up and down in terms of philosophies, do we not? The just-in-time move, which caught on for quite a while there, was expressly implemented with the goal of reducing inventories. And then all of a sudden, with all these disruptions in the supply chain, companies turned around and said, well, maybe we do need buffer stock. Maybe we do need safety stock. But you are suggesting a third path forward, are you not, that doesn't avail itself of the disadvantages of either of those options, sounds like. Correct. And a lot of that comes through the different ways that we can move cargo into a region. And so you can use alternate, the normal journey is a vessel and rail, then you can potentially use, uh, as you said earlier, a vessel and a motor carrier and being able to trade off those costs as demand shifts from one region to another. And so each node in the logistics supply chain offers an opportunity to make decisions. We have now high volume cross docks where we can move cargo into a cross dock in Los Angeles, for example, city of industry, and make decisions around where does that cargo really need to go at this point in time. And then we can offer up an alternative of if it really needs to get somewhere fast and it's cost effective, or or you can manage the cost, then you could put it on a subset of that cargo on an air, airplane. And maybe even in some cases, we could make those decisions while the container is still on the water, while the product is still on the water. Although I don't know to the extent to which that's being done, but certainly sounds like another way to go and make that decision even later in, in the process. Here's an interesting one. You say the weakest link in the chain, that is motor carriers, obviously carries the most tonnage. Why are motor carriers the weakest link? In many cases, you've got contracts, contracted lanes with these motor carriers, and there's a certain amount of capacity that you've contracted with. And being able to go out to the spot market is, while it's becoming easier, it's still not as easy as it needs to be. And so we see the Uber freight, the convoys, companies like that will provide a whole nother level of service back into the shippers as they need to move freight within a region and within mm-hmm. the United States or within Europe. And we see you know, that, that spot market being kind of a critical piece also of the European market because a lot of the motor carriers, are, there's no large ones like there are in the U.S. I mean, the largest one I think has maybe 7,000 trucks. And so, and then as you get into Africa and as you get in parts of Asia, it's very similar. And so being able to find the right motor carrier on the right lane in more of a a spot market, we think, will become more of a norm. I think the spot market might help address the issue of inadequate utilization of the capacity within a trailer. I mean, we talk about empty backhauls. That's certainly a problem. But we also talk about not fully utilized headhauls, that there's more room on a trailer that could be utilized in the headhaul side. Maybe the spot market goes away to solving that, do you think? Absolutely. And, and it's also important for trucking companies to have the right kind of tools to be able to understand when they can take advantage of this. So integrations into load boards, integrations and being able to bid back into load boards and pick up maybe pallet loads or smaller amount of cargo that will complement their journey with their main carry. 
Those kind of tools will be extremely important. They will make, similar to what Uber has done with passengers, we very much see this similar happening in, in the trucking industry. But it has to happen on both sides, and it has to happen on both the trucking side and on the shipper side. Finally, this last point is an aspect that tends to get overlooked all too often, and that is money. Uh, We're talking about slow financial processes that limit working capital, increase business risk, and barriers to entry. What kind of financial processes are happening here that are slow, and, and why is that the case? So in the freight industry, invoices are incredibly complex. There's a, a lane rate, whether it's you're an ocean carrier, an air cargo carrier, a motor carrier, a barge. There's a typical, I need to go from origin to destination, and there's a lane rate for that. But the complexity comes in in all the other charges that you get on top of the lane rate. And we call those accessorials and fuel surcharges. So, for example, if the fuel price fluctuates beyond a certain amount, there's a fuel charge added to that lane rate. And then if the driver had to unload the cargo or had to wait too long at a distribution center, wait too long at a marine terminal, that adds additional accessorial charges. And so when the invoice actually comes in to the shipper, they look at it and there's a whole process called freight audit and pay today that the uh, shipper will go through. And the more complex the invoice, the longer that freight audit cycle takes. And hence, it can actually, with disputes, can hold up the invoice. So we believe there's a next generation of freight audit and pay where it very much smooths out and you get a lot more insight through software systems into these uh, accessorial charges. So nobody is surprised by the charges. As an example, if a uh, motor carrier is going to a marine terminal, you now know how long it's going to take to get into that marine terminal, pick up the container and move out. And you can monitor how long that motor carrier is sitting there. You can see how long the lines are. So you can be much more proactive in understanding how much wait time that carrier is going to charge or the same thing if you're looking at containers and there's a concept of demerage and detention where you want advanced insight if a container sitting in a marine terminal past a number of free days or if the marine container sitting at a distribution center has being unloaded beyond the number of a detention free days. So mm-hmm. having all that insight through software, it significantly reduces the discrepancies in invoices. Well, 40 years of deregulation, we still haven't quite got it right, but maybe this is finally the answer you think, that technology will help us in that regard. I want to sum up by asking you what you consider to be the single biggest lesson that we can take from 2019, and for that matter, years before 2019, that can be applied to 2020, even though we have no idea how 2020 is going to play out at this point. What's the big big takeaway, the big lesson to be learned, the big thing that needs to be done? Well, I want to go back to the main challenge today. And the lesson is being able to understand how long it takes to get cargo to a final destination. And so in the world of supply chain, inventory holding costs are high. And many times predictability is much more important than being able to move faster. And so having more predictable lead times is essential to managing today's supply chain. In the past, we haven't had that. I mean, the fluctuations and the variation in especially, well, both manufacturing and in logistics lead time have been all over the map. And so believe that is the software and today's software, including ML, 
will be able to provide much more accurate and predictable lead times. Well, so much waste and so much lost money and time to be washed out of the system. It's good to know, Glenn, that there are some ways that this can be addressed. And it's also very enlightening to hear these top five key challenges that supply chain leaders need to address in the coming year, even though, as I say, we really don't know how that year is going to look. But these sound like evergreen type solutions. So very valuable insights. Glenn Jones of Bloom Global, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bob. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Glenn Jones of Bloom Global, talking about the five key challenges facing supply chain leaders today. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. Now, so download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.